Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at SchoolStatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, episode 170, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. This week, a tale of two states. Can Florida and New York's approach to putting students back in the classroom be any more different? Stay with us. Class Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This week, psychiatrist and associate professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, Dr. Helen Reese, tells us how we can better teach and practice empathy in our schools. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortigo here. Today is October 4th, 2020, and I'm joined by friend, principal, and co-host, Christina Pollard. Christina, how are you doing? Hey, hey. Hey, hey. I'm doing okay. Yeah. You know, completely six weeks in, um, COVID numbers still extremely low in our district. That's good. No outbreaks or major quarantines. Um, but, you know, new things in the and the news <laughs> bring up concern. Right. And I think you're probably talking about the fact that our governor, are we the first to stop the mask mandate? I don't know if that's Mississippi true. Mississippi. You know, I don't know if we're leading first. the way, <laughs> leading the that's way not, on that. That's not normal to hear that. <laughs> right. So our governor decided to no longer mandate masks. They are, I guess, encouraged. Um, They're encouraged. However, um, cities and municipalities are welcome to continue to mandate a mask if they so choose, but he felt that he it was time for him to step back from it. Right. And I, I think I'm with you in the sense of we don't need to lead the charge on this. Like, we don't need to be the no, ones. No, we don't, especially since we were one of the highest for a while with new cases. Um, and while I know the numbers did seem to decrease, and I'm so grateful for that, it took a lot of push to get people to wear their mask. If businesses had not complied and put up signs and, you know, took the risk of asking patrons to please step back to your car until you get your mask. Mm -hmm. Same with schools. If schools weren't, you know, really enforcing it, large, large organizations. I don't know if we would be um, where we are right now with lower numbers. I think the thing that stands out for me is now we're heading into where some school districts will have a fall break. We will not. We lost those dates. Mm -hmm. um, and then, of course, you have holiday breaks coming up. And so it, it's a concern. You know, for me, mask wearing is, uh, I think mandates are important, but mask wearing also is just about leadership. It's about those in charge saying, this is what we should be doing. I mean, the idea of mandating it and enforcing for others. it. Yeah. And for, for others. And that message, if it was clear, I, I liken it to, I remember being in college, sociology, like 101 or whatever it was I was in. And they showed an experiment of people on an elevator. And the experiment was if two people were already on the elevator and they were facing backwards looking at the back of the elevator what would other people do when they got on the elevator and, they'd face that direction <laughs> and sure enough that that is what happened they would face that direction and i feel like mask wearing is so much like that i mean there's times i feel like where i'll pull up to a public place and then like 
Lowe's or Home Depot or Walmart or whatever. I think it's such the norm now. Everyone's just putting masks on, no matter what your political beliefs are, just because that is accepted and normal. But then sometimes you pull up to like an event that's kind of, do I wear a mask and do I don't? And then there's a quick, you know, we take a quick look and say, well, only five people have masks and 95 don't. So I'm not going to wear one either. And I feel like that's kind of part of the challenge we're in. And I wish leaders would, would fight that. That's very true. And just to add to what you said about the little experiment, I even find that there are times when um, I pop out of my car, you know, if I'm going to run into Target or such, and I might take a few steps and see someone with their mask on and go, oh, my mask is on my, you know, my dashboard or whatever. And I'll turn around and go get it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. No doubt. Um, So, yeah, that's kind of where we are. I was quickly pulling up the numbers for the uh, state of Mississippi. You know, we kind of monitor them each week and and things Mm -hmm. are pretty much in line you know just little shifts here and there on the the teacher side again our average is like 128 and we had 164 new teachers in the last week of data that contracted <laughs> covid and then on the student side the average is about 287 and we had 295 so last week was a we little above to, average yeah and we do also have to think about it doesn't necessarily mean that a teacher contracted it from school right um we have to remember that we're all living you know individual lives social mm-hmm. social lives and um it does impact teacher absences. So that's something that's not necessarily being reported as to whether um, a teacher is getting sick from a student or a colleague. And then is that impacting the student body, causing um, quarantines and outbreaks? I haven't really, you know, been well, able to get that data. Right. But I will say this, if it's, you know, not too crass to share, I noticed this past weekend at my son's football game that we didn't have a cheerleading squad. Okay, so and but you, who didn't have the cheerleading squad? Y'all's team or the other team? Our Are team you? did not have a cheerleading squad, and after okay. asking a few questions, I found out the entire squad was quarantined. Really? Wow! Yes. No, I had not heard that. And yeah, um, that, that was an away game you guys had. Congratulations on the win, by the way. I think it was a big win. Thank for you. you. Guys. But, Absolutely, but yes. And so I just thought to myself, you know, um, it's almost inevitable when you don't require them to wear masks when they're practicing and when they're cheering together. And that's a close contact um, type of sport, cheerleading, so to speak. And then ironically, I was um, sitting in the parking lot waiting for my husband's game to start on Thursday. Mm -hmm. And I saw the cheerleaders arrive and they were all riding together in just about one or two cars. Mm -hmm. You can imagine how they were packed in there um, and they didn't have masks on. And so I immediately thought to myself, they're going to be quarantined soon. Yeah. I mean, it just takes one, as we've seen, as we've seen taking place at the White House, you know, a couple of events that we've clearly had a super spreader event take place. Either it was at the Supreme Court uh, thing or tied into the debate or a little bit I of both. I think it was I mean, the Supreme Court nomination yeah. event. Yeah. I mean, I, there hasn't been any official contact tracing, but that clearly seems to be the case. So, um, and it's weird. There's just like no federal, let's forget the word mandate, no federal uniform guidelines it feels like no, at least not being announced there may be something official and writing buried on a website somewhere but there's just no federal tone and and that's what we're lacking and i'm looking at you know the news before i did the show today and it's like i've got one story here that says the headline is this florida governor says closing schools um to stop spread of covid19 was a mistake and he's he's referring to closing schools back in march um but well, why did he think that Keeping them open would have caused us to go ahead and get it just, you know, to to help with not not anticipating a second major wave. What's his I will give you his quotes. He says in March, 
We may not have had all the information, but in hindsight, knowing what we know now, the closure of schools was one of the biggest public health mistakes in modern American history, Governor, mm. uh, Florida Governor DeSantis said. And he said, quote, and I think even Europe has said we, would, we shouldn't have closed up, end quote. And then he goes on to say, so now we're at a point where the people who advocate school closures are really the flat earthers of our day, DeSantis said. They're not doing it based on data. They're doing it based on either politics or emotion. I think there's a lot of rhetoric there. And he was on a conservative radio show when he was um, quoted saying this. But then I, I go to the New York Times today as well, and the headline is, in a reversal, New York City will close schools and businesses in hard-hit areas. And um, they're closing not the whole entire city of New York, but they're basically shutting down schools in, I think, 11 so of like... are a, they having some serious outbreaks? Uh, they apparently are. It, apparently, it means... Um, it looks like... In total, the mayor's plan would affect 20 of the 146 zip codes in the city, which it's remarkable there's 146 zip codes in the city, but that, that, so 20 of those. And apparently, the most of the neighborhoods and schools that are being shut down, um, they have large populations of um, Orthodox Jews, and it says the virus has been spreading rapidly in those communities in recent weeks, but those schools have actually been open a lot longer than all the public schools or a lot of private schools yep. there. Um, that and, goes back to so, um, customs and lifestyle. I mean, it might. Um, I, I don't, don't know. I think that community, those communities are very tight knit mm-hmm. um, and they still fellowship a lot together. And I think New York City schools just opened three days ago um, as a as a public, not the private schools, but the public schools did. Mm-hmm. And so here they are already having to shut some down. Um, and the quote from de Blasio was today, unfortunately, is not a day for celebration. Today is a more difficult day. So, I mean, here we are. We're in the same country. We're dealing with the same virus. And there's just these two polar opposite political, you know, reactions to COVID-19. And I don't I don't right. say this for for us to really dive into it as much as just to say this is the state that we're in right now. It's weird. Well, I think that everybody's trying to make the best decisions that they can. I just have been puzzled for some time now as to why our um specialist, our um doctors that study this every single day why we're not seeing them on television anymore. Why aren't they leading the discussion? Why did we snuff them out? And that's what it feels like we did. Yeah. And I I think that's all we have to say. We'll just leave that as a rhetorical question because I have not seen them um, either. Now, uh, Mississippi Today, a local news source in our state, um, was pointing out this week that the um, this is good. They apparently are using $200 million to improve connectivity for students. They're spending 150, oh, that's awesome. right, 150 mm-hmm. million of that is going to go to getting devices one-to-one and 50 million is to improve internet connectivity in places where they have little or no internet. And I believe that was the competitive funding um, that was released in September. It and there were been. technology plans and specific steps that districts had to follow to apply for the funding. And there are some, um, special indicators that you have to follow in order to receive that funding. So what what has have you seen this trickle down into your world? I know my child got a, a new device um, handed to him this year. Have you seen that actually you're in a different district where you well, are I'm in a different district. We did apply um, and we did we were accepted. Our devices have been ordered. They are not in yet. I do believe a lot of districts um, had devices within the district and it took some time to get them prepared to issue to students. Um, But for us, we're waiting on our new devices to come in and I'm really excited about it. But as you mentioned a few moments ago, even when the devices come in, internet connectivity is going to be the next 
issue. And while we are going to have some hot spots within our school parking lot, parents have to actually take the time to go sit there in the evening if their child needs to do schoolwork. And I don't know how practical that is, depending on the nine to five that they're, you know, working every day. But, you know, something is better than nothing. And I have to say this of COVID-19, if nothing else, it has forced us to get into the technology age that we should have been in 10 years ago. Right. Uh, look, I mean, we just kept on passing it by, kept, kept on, you know, pretty much putting a bandaid on the issue. Mm-hmm. And now we're, you know, being forced to support those communities, especially rural areas. Well, and so that that's what's interesting. So there's two reasons kids don't have connectivity, as I see it. I'm, I'm being very, you know, this or that about it. But you, you have the rural areas where they just don't have connectivity period. Like it doesn't exist. There's no, it's an infrastructure issue for them. Right. Right. And then you have, um, you, you may see some of this with your district. You may have, um, inner city school where there's internet in the city, but But maybe the the families families can't can't afford afford to pay for it. And so it's the latter that I feel like there should be a quick fix for like those barriers should be able to be ripped down. I'm not saying it's a district's responsibility as much as the state or the federal government's responsibility to say like, we need to turn on internet. If it, if it is there infrastructurally, it needs to be turned on for these kids. So I'm just going to throw this out there in general. It shouldn't be something we have to pay for. If that's something we have to rely on. Mm -hmm. I think that it should just be available to any and everyone. And I look at it like this. We've been, we've, we've done this before as a country, right? Because we have the U S postal service. There was a time where the country made a conscious effort to say, everyone needs to be able to send mail no matter where you are in this country. And we're going to figure out how to accomplish that. And they created the U S postal service. And we figured out a way to get a letter from point A to point B, no matter what area you were in. And I look at this as the same challenge and, you know, I mean, and, maybe even more important because it is information. And I just wish the the government would say, we need to solve this problem and we are going to create, whether it has to be a, a, a federal entity to make this happen, to get internet to everybody. Um, it's to the point where, yes, it should be a right. It should. And so, I agree. So anyhow, that's kind of we'll where we We'll see what happens in a few months. I look forward to being able to share um, those updates with you. Um, I would say it's my hope listening to the information and the deadlines or whatnot that by December 1st, we will um, be much more productive within our school district for children. But unfortunately, that would be an entire semester in. And and that's the case for many, many areas. And you could probably speak to this. It's it's. It is not equal. I mean, a a no, child sir, who has not. a computer and high speed internet is now getting a better education than the the child that does not have one of well, those two things. We just need to say that those that um that had access when this first happened never stopped learning, right. never stopped completing schoolwork, never stopped having access to a high quality education. Right. So. I don't know what to do. I don't have the the silver bowl to solve that, but we can kind of say our piece and, and hopefully, you know, we'll see things improve over time. It's good to see a state like Mississippi sinking in. I think it's put a spotlight on it where, you know, I think it's put a spotlight on it. Whereas a lot of times um, I think they were trying to ignore it and not necessarily address it. But now all eyes are on the fact that there's, you know, an equity issue. And I just think that it's going to continue to be, um, at the forefront of, of education conversations. We have a guest in today's Bright Idea today that um, I'm going to say I'm honored to uh, have on the show. Have you ever heard of the book called The Empathy Effect by chance? I have. And I want I want to say that it was um, 
at a conference where we were attending and someone just mentioned it, but I have not read it. You know, it's a great self-help tool to, to really learn how to connect with whoever is in your life, whether it's your students or your colleagues or your family or whoever. So um, are you ready for today's bright idea? Yes, let's bring that on. Our guest in today's bright idea segment is one of the world's leading experts on empathy. And she's going to help us understand why empathy is crucial in education. And we'll even touch on how we can get a little better at being an empathetic person. Dr. Helen Reese is a psychiatrist and associate professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, and she's the co-author of The Empathy Effect, Seven Neuroscience-Based Keys for Transforming the Way We Live, Love, Work, and Connect Across Differences. Dr. Reese, welcome to Class Dismissed. Thank you so much for having me. It is really an honor to have you, and I hope we can um, you know, hopefully get our listeners, who are mostly educators, really understanding why empathy is so important in the world of education. But before we dive too deep into all of it, I want to first kind of clear out what may or may not be a, a common misconception about empathy, and, and that is, is empathy an innate quality, or is this something we can teach and learn? Well, the answer to that is it's both. Um, for many, many years, people thought empathy was something you were either born with or, or not, and that there wasn't too much you could do about your empathy quotient. But um, now many research studies have kind of uh, put that notion um, on its head because we now, um, including my research team at Mass General Hospital, have shown that we definitely can teach empathy skills um, and that a lot of it has to do with just heightened perception and attention to people's emotional cues. That sounds complex and I don't, I don't want you to have to dive too deep into this, but how can you with research prove that this can be taught and learned? Well, in our research, we took a hundred doctors and we randomized them to receive empathy training or not. And then we gave them empathy training and asked patients to rate them before and after any training took place to see if patients could see if there was a difference. And, um, you know, what we taught them was, um, you know, how to look at people with openness and curiosity, how to uh, read their facial expressions, um, and how to go beneath just what people say they want to what they're really concerned about. And so a lot of teaching empathy is um, opening up that curiosity about another person's lived experience. And so you, I guess, started your research based off of the idea of like, how can I improve the doctor-patient relationship, right? Like you weren't really thinking about this for everybody, were you? No, I was specifically trying to address the empathy deficit in healthcare, but I've as I did all my research, I realized that these skills really could apply to really any group, any industry. And I just like to clarify that empathy is not one thing. It's actually a capacity to perceive and understand and know to some degree what feelings another person is experiencing. So when we say empathy, we, we really are talking about a capacity for perception processing what we perceive, and then um, being motivated to, uh, to 
to uh, give a response. Well, uh, yeah, let's let's talk about that a little bit, though. So so it's like you can't when if, if I'm saying this person is empathetic, that's not really that's too pointed. You're saying it's almost like empathy is the ability to, you know, appreciate where someone's coming from, but then also react to that. And, and, and how how well you do that is kind of the range of capacity. Is that is that what you're saying? Well, you know, I think the simplest way to think about empathy is that it allows us to appreciate somebody else's thoughts and feelings. And then we process those based on what we see, feel, smell, you know, hear. And then um, we are then motivated in most cases, if somebody's like suffering, to want to help. But um, the actual decision to help or not is um, that is what I consider to be compassion. So compassion is what comes out of us. It's the action part of empathy. Empathy is the understanding first, you know, what's this person going through? What is their perspective? How do they see the world? You know, how do I take off my own eyeglasses and put on their spectacles and see the world as they see it? Your book is is really incredible. And you dive into so many different crevices of this. Um, we are only going to be able to kind of scratch the surface a little bit in this interview. Um, but again, it, it, the book's called Empathy Effect. And, and in it, um, you guys actually turned the word empathy, I guess, into a, to an acronym. Um, and for example, you know, E is eye contact and M is muscles of facial expression. And we're not going to go through through each letter, but I do um, want to try to highlight a few of those. And, and let's just start with um, E, which is eye contact. Um, this one kind of jumped out at me because I feel like it's something that educators can take and and run with pretty quickly. That's an excellent place to start. And um, the reason is that learning only takes place through um, emotional engagement with a teacher or with a subject matter. And for a student to be motivated, they need to see that the teacher recognizes them as a unique individual. And there's nothing more powerful than making meaningful eye contact with students to, to show like, I see you, instead of just looking kind of at a blur of faces and not making individual eye contact. In the Zulu tribe, the word for hello is, I see you. And I think that's something really important to go beyond, hi, how are you? Or even just say class, you know, today we're going to be learning about X, Y, and Z to actually intentionally make eye contact with the students when they're speaking up or when they are looking confused. So the power of just our using our gaze, and I do not mean staring people down at by any means. I just mean sort of like looking in somebody's eye to have them know you're you're there, your your presence, your your attention is with them. You actually give a pretty good trick, I think, and and that comes in the way of um, you say notice the eye color of the person that you're looking at, and I assume you don't mean verbally out loud saying, "Oh, you have beautiful blue eyes." You just mean by noticing it, yeah, in your own mind, right? Yeah, exactly. So um, I realized that one way to know that you have made eye contact is to register the person's eye color, um, and you know, eyes are way more than just blue or brown or green like there's so many different shades and some of them are mixed and um so it doesn't mean just like oh he's got blue eyes i'm good but it means like meeting the gaze so that that person knows that you have recognized them and that is a, a handy trick um that i sometimes use with 
our trainees in healthcare. Like I'll just say, oh, and what what I, what was a patient's eye color? And they all look at me as if I'm a little out there. And I'll say, how about you let me know next time? And then they'll they'll come back and say, you know, when I looked the person in the eye, something different happened. You know, we both felt like I was all there. That is awesome. I have to use that just in like regular life practice. I think that's such a great little tip. Yes, it really helps in social situations. Working down the acronym of empathy, we're going to jump to letter A, and that's affect, which I guess is a scientific term for the word emotion, right? Yes. So um, as you mentioned, I'm a psychiatrist. And, you know, when we do an examination of our patients, we are um, we are looking for emotional cues to let us know, is this person, you know, showing anxiety? Are they depressed? Are they fearful? Are they confused? And so as part of our psychiatric exam, we have to write down the patient's affect because it, it's really essential to, um, you know, evaluating you know, what, what they need as far as a treatment plan. And there's a well-known phrase called, if you name it, you can tame it. And so if you can name that somebody looks confused, you're probably going to be a little more conscious of trying to clear up confusion than if you just look at someone's face and don't really try to uh, name what emotion you're seeing. And, you know, the same is true for all the basic emotions like happiness, sadness, fear, surprise, anger, disgust, and contempt, which are considered the universal emotions that you find in really all parts of the world. In this section of the book, you specifically say naming emotions is important for teachers. And and I guess my question is, do you want educators to verbally say, oh, hey, I understand you're feeling X or Y, or do you want them just to recognize it to themselves so they know how to react better? Yeah, that's a very important question. I do not mean starting to label people and saying, oh, you're angry or, oh, you're disgusted. Uh, Naming the affect is something we do silently to ourselves. And usually just by naming it, you adapt your interaction with that person. Like if someone looks really sad, you're not going to say, Hey, how's it going? You know, you're going to say, how are you today? So you'll adjust your tone of voice to match what you, and then you might say, are you feeling okay? You know, you look a little sad, but you wouldn't just come up to somebody and say, I can see you're sad. You know, do you want to talk about it? Is that, that doesn't really give the person a, a, a kind of a warning that you're actually interested in having a conversation. Yeah, I would think that that could almost backfire. I would I would think if you said it out loud like that. Yes, I think it's more to be really attuned to people's like students' emotions. So if somebody who normally participates in class a lot suddenly is kind of withdrawn or daydreaming or seeming distracted, you know, that's okay for, you know, a few minutes, but if if you start to see a pattern then by just noticing that change in, in emotion and attention, a teacher might think it's appropriate to say, is everything okay? I notice you've been less, um, you know, talkative in class and I miss hearing what you have to say. In, in chapter seven of your book, you um, specifically write about teachers. I mean, that whole chapter is pretty much dedicated towards educators. Why did you feel it was important to have a chapter focus 
on that profession? Well, um, Nick, the reason is that, um, you know, I founded Empathetics, an empathy training company that is um, the most part geared for healthcare, but we get so many calls from other industries and education is, you know, one of the top um, industries that's interested in expanding empathy because I think as all good educators realize, most learning is emotional. You know, if people are engaged emotionally, they're more apt to, apt to remember things. They, they'll want to read more. If they're engaged, um, you know, they're, they're going to uh, get that spark or that desire to, to dive deeper into material. And so we want to kindle that light and that, that, um, that curiosity that actually helps kids like figure out like, what am I truly interested in? What really, you know, gets me uh, interested in uh, learning more? Like, where do my talents fit with my interests? How, how do I develop them? Um, I, I want to say I saw in a video somewhere that you um, actually say that, you know, there's a lot of focus on STEM education, uh, maths and sciences and so forth, but there's not as much focus on uh, emotional education and, and empathy. Is that how you feel? You feel like we should be stepping up that game in our K through 12 education? I definitely do. I think we're in a society that is quite ill-equipped to talk about emotion and feelings. You know, our, our education systems for, you know, hundreds of years have been trying to cram information, cognitive information into the brains of children and, and young adults. And um, I think we need more than information to succeed in the world. We need to be able to have difficult conversations. We need to engage with people who are not like us. We need to appreciate when somebody needs support. Um, we need to learn how to speak up when someone's being bullied. So these are all parts of an emotional education that I think we have really a, a long road ahead to to introduce, you know, these kinds of um, sensitivities and skills so that we have a more peaceful and humane world. I, I think there's these these. You know, our world today um, is a great illustration of what happens when people can't talk civilly with each other because they don't understand their perspectives. And just jumping to escalation and anger is not the way to um, move forward together in, in any setting. You know, we, we probably could improve a lot of the problems on uh, Twitter and the political arena, I guess, if we, we were all better at that. Um, so you kind of dive into the science, and this is really interesting to me because I've never really heard anybody talk about this, but you, you talk about younger brains and, and how they're socially motivated. And I guess there's been research saying like where they've studied middle school brains and they kind of see what part of the brain lights up. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that? Yes. So... Um I think this is a fascinating topic because um, I, I don't know if how it was when you were a learner, but when we learned history, we were basically just, um, you know, presented with all kinds of world events, the dates, uh, where the, you know, where the war happened, when it started and stopped and who was in charge. Mm -hmm. And 
I remember feeling it was very dry because none of those people really meant anything. They were just names on a page. And young learners are, you know, when you look at what they what they gravitate to naturally, it's um, it's stories. It's um, you know, watching short videos on things, and they're they're very engaged um, and often for a short time. So. Um, I think we can really harness the way the younger brain works to, you know, present material maybe, um, you know, in in an audio book that engages them maybe a little more in a, in t- types of um, games and also you know kind of even drama. So, you know, learning to act out, you know, what happened at the Battle of Gettysburg, for example, could really come to life if, um, you know, if if the arts or, or some dramatic um, techniques are used instead of go home and read this, you know, this chapter and you'll get a, you know, a test on it next week. So engaging kids in what they already like to do. Um, and many of them listen to music all the time. Many of them are very engaged through the, the hearing realm, some more than the written word. And, you know, the use of what we now, almost everything is an audio book, like just really figuring out what is the learning channel for each individual student and how do we present the material so that they're really engaged. You you talk about, um, I guess, how a middle school child is, you know, peer groups are a top priority. And, and you mentioned that our brain doesn't fully develop until age 25. I think it was about 27 for me when I finally started like realizing what life was about. <laughs> and and um, it just takes a little while, right? Like our brains aren't aren't fully developed yet. And um, you, you kind of drive into and I think you, you have a, a colleague or somebody, you know, I think the last name was Armstrong, where you talked about like experience based learning and and, and um, yes. What what do you mean, like when you talk about experience based learning? Like, what could a teacher change um, to make sure they're reaching those children whose whose brains not fully developed? Yeah, so you're referring to uh, my colleague Liz Armstrong, who introduced problem based learning at Harvard Medical School. So instead of learning, you know, um, all about a disease, um, you know, what organ it affects, what kind of you know, changes happen and what kind of treatments they, they study a person, you know, so if you're studying a person with diabetes, for example, you're really thinking about like, how does this affect the whole person? You know, what are they eating? So it it becomes much more uh, socially driven. And that was my point in the book that kids um, are, are really motivated by understanding social signals, like who's in, who's out who was invited, who wasn't, you know, their, their brains at rest are constantly solving social problems or musing about social events. So to bring, um, you know, characters to life in in a, in a social setting, like if you have two heads of state that don't get along, you know, presenting the material more about like, you know, why do these two not like each other? What, what, what does this one stand for that the other one doesn't? What would a dialogue sound like? You see, that lifts the the lesson off the page, and it becomes like a social problem. And that's what engages kids, especially in the teenage years. We've already talked a lot about how us as educators could be more empathetic 
to be a better teacher. But what about the flip side of that? How do you teach a student to be empathetic while they're in school? I mean, is there a way to actually teach empathy in, in the classroom setting? Oh, yes. And this can start in kindergarten. So, um, you know, there's a, uh, a, a system called open circle that I'm familiar with where kids sit in a circle and they are invited to bring any social concerns, you know, like Jimmy was mean to Tommy on the playground. And so instead of saying to Jimmy, Jimmy, stop being mean to Tommy on the playground, you would ask the children, what do you think Tommy was feeling when, when Jimmy said that? And what do you think Jimmy was feeling that he would say that to Tommy? So you present these as like kind of a emotional puzzle. Like what, what was going on that he would, you know, either push him or take his toy or whatever. And so you set a norm that talking about feelings is not only allowed, but encouraged. And many times, even young, young children can say it wasn't nice of Jimmy to, you know, to push Tommy on the playground. Um, his mom is really sick. You know, maybe he's upset about that. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's amazing how astute young kids are to like um, motivation for why kids do things. That that leads me to a question I wasn't really prepared to ask, but you made me think of something. You're talking about, you know, we we have a chance to reach these young young kids, but let's hypothetically say there's a there's a grown man in his 70s who it seems like the most I don't know if it's inempathetic, if that's a word, but least empathetic person. Can you change that person or is it, are they too far down the road to where, you know, even through psychiatry that in counseling, it just wouldn't be possible to bring that person around? Well, Nick, um, research supports the notion that there are about maybe 4% of people who truly lack empathy. They don't have the brain wiring to really appreciate how other people feel. And um, that might be a little too high a number, but it's important to realize that some people don't have it and they're kind of dangerous because they really are incapable of imagining, you know, what it feels like to, you know, to be called a name or to be threatened. Um, they, They don't have the, the fear response um, and they're lacking other kind of mirror neurons that help us know what other people feel. So, but I don't think we're talking about the people with a true, like true full deficit. There are people who are more, you know, on the spectrum of not having that much empathy. And sometimes something as simple as saying, can you imagine, you know, what, what that might feel like? Um, for, you know, the other person? Or can you imagine how that would feel if that were happening to you? You know, you might get an initial, no, you know, I don't. But um, if you stick with somebody, sometimes just staying in conversation, they'll they'll actually come around to saying, I, I, I can imagine that doesn't feel very good. So um, I'd like to leave our listeners with with a little tool um, for trying to advance empathy in any relationship. And it's, it's what I call the ABC, 
Acknowledge when you're in a difficult conversation. B is take a deep breath because that gives a little pause from the trigger to our response. And C is show curiosity. Because as soon as we move to judgment, there's really no open door left to show empathy. But if we say, gee, I'd like to understand why you did that, you might get a, you know, an angry response. But once the person's listened to and heard, you usually can get to a deeper level. You know, maybe they're upset because it reminds them of something that happened in the past or it's, you know, the third time somebody's been, you know, mean to them. But before we start scolding, I really think we need to acknowledge, that's the A, B, take a deep breath and show curiosity. Like, tell me what just happened here. Help me understand what just took place. That is phenomenal advice. And and again, the book is called Empathy Effect. If anybody, I mean, it's just packed with information like this. It was a great read. Um, if you feel like you have an empathy deficit, run out and get it. Um, it was just really good material and not just for educators, but I felt like there was such a strong education a connection. We definitely had to have you on the show. And I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. Oh, thank you for, for those kind words. I really appreciate them. Are you ready for our pop quiz? Sure. I think so. All right. First question. If students could only go to school for one subject, which subject should it be? Well, since we're on the subject of empathy, I would say the subject of um, reading literature, and that can be from the most basic board book to, you know, sophisticated stories in high school, because reading literature, and I mean good literature, um, actually helps people become more empathetic because they can get into the mind and heart of characters who are not like themselves. And I want to stress again the use of audiobooks because some kids find reading hard and they, they lose interest, they don't stick with it. And um, so hearing great literature does the same thing. That's good to hear because I am a loyal Audible subscriber. Um, what are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching? Well, I think we touched on that today. I know some schools are teaching socio-emotional learning, SEL, but I think we have a long way to go before this is uh, really uh, integrated into every school curriculum. What does every child deserve? Every child deserves to be seen, heard, and appreciated. It's a basic need. What's the biggest challenge for today's educators? I think most educators feel like they have too many jobs. I mean, they, they are, many of them are, you know, filling in for like parental teaching that isn't happening at home. Much of this is the socio-emotional learning. Um, many of them have classrooms that are way too big. Um, and, you know, just having the supplies that can help them be the best teachers they can be um, really should be, um, you know, an absolute guarantee when they're teaching a class. Um, so I think those three things in particular. What's the best gift to give an educator? The best gift to give an educator is an engaged student. Like there's people going to teaching because they love their subject matter or they love kids. 
And, you know, if you're talking to a blank wall, you're not going to feel too fulfilled at the end of the day. But if you can inspire kids to love what you love, um, that that light, that flame is the greatest gift and makes teachers feel that they're that their job is so worthwhile. Which teacher changed your life? Um, my ninth grade biology teacher, Mr. Yanarelli. <laughs> I had always loved English and writing and reading. And um, because of his phenomenal zest and zeal for the subject matter, I came to love biology. And um, it really steered my course to um, eventually go to medical school and, you know, just get to learn so many things about how we're made, how we work and how we function. But it really was his love of his subject matter that was so contagious. I've got to ask, did you ever have an opportunity to tell him? I did. I, I've, ri- I've written him letters and he wrote back. He's retired now, but he remembered me uh, way back from ninth grade. And um, it was really a joyous moment when we reconnected. That's really cool. And last question, pen or pencil? Pencil. All right. Again, Dr. Helen Reese, we appreciate your time. The book is called Empathy Effect. And I guess the best place probably to keep up with you is at y'all's website. It's uh, empathetics.com. Is that correct? Yes, empathetics.com. We keep a news um, feed. Also, we're on LinkedIn and Twitter. And I imagine, do you ever speak to school groups? Yes, I do. I've spoken to many school groups. Excellent. Excellent. Well, again, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on Class Dismissed. It's been a pleasure. Pleasure's mine. Thank you so much, Nick. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com or tweet us at classdismissed. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So please subscribe to the show. And we'd also appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes. On behalf of all the good people working at School Status and Christina, representing all those educators out there, thank you for listening. I'm Nick Ortigo, and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed.